and welcome to episode 56 of the Night Gallery podcast. My name's Chris Brown. Today we're going to be talking about The Messiah on Mott Street. It's a teleplay by Rod Serling, directed by Don Taylor, and originally aired on December 15th, 1971. This is very much Rod Serling's story for the holiday season, and it's one that, uh, although slightly sentimental, has a wonderful Christmas spirit to it. Good evening. Of course, you're all here by invitation, but don't let it disturb you if these paintings, per se, don't happen to be your thing. These are rather special paintings, the kind of hanging generally put up with a noose. This painting, for example, is of a rather special world. What has become perpetuated in the language as the ghetto, that dismal realm of pushcarts and poverty, where hopes are stamped down like dirty shoes on snow. Death is a commonplace visitor to these somber alleys, but occasionally someone else visits. Our painting is called The Messiah on Mott Street, and this place, should you not already know it, is the Night Gallery. We're on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, on Mott Street. It's Christmas Eve. Abraham Goodman is 77, and he's in his apartment, which is quite quite tired and old, and he himself is very tired now. He's a man with worries, failing health, but also the knowledge that if he dies, his nine-year-old grandson will have to go into care because he's the only person who can look after him. His doctor is aware how bad the situation is and pleads with Goodman to go into a hospital for the care that he needs. But he refuses to. Um, He refuses to because, uh, well, Abraham believes that if he does go into, into into a hospital, the child will almost certainly be taken to care at that stage. And he refuses to let that happen. He's clinging on to a few hopes. One is that he can get some money that he's owed from his brother, who is a farmer over in California. But we find out from a care worker that in actual fact that the um, the brother is really in a home with hardening arteries and uh, not a lot of hope that the cash will come over. So what really is Abraham looking for? Well, in truth, he's looking for a miracle. Uh, some way that a Messiah, the Messiah might come and help him out of his problems. Although it appears that the Messiah is already acting. Who's the Messiah? Who's the Messiah? He's the messenger from God. Any moment he will appear, looming big and black against the sky, striking down our enemies and lifting us up to health and wealth and heavenly contentment. He'll fix our digestions, too. He'll supply me with a new set of teeth. And very likely he'll install us in a palace. Will he bring ice cream? Oh, tons. Toys? And carloads, freight trains full. What else? What else do you want? Will he bring the Giants back to New York? Not only that, he'll throw out the first ball. (laughs) (laughs) 
His grandson, Mikey, hearing that he needs a, a messiah, and that, in actual fact, that to kind of cheer him up, that uh, Abraham had said to him that the messiah is actually going to arrive on Mott Street, rather excitedly leaves the, uh, the apartment and goes out to look for him. First, he sees a, a Father Christmas who's ringing a bell, who basically tells him to shoo off. He sees some homeless people trying to warm themselves over a fire in the Christmas Eve cold. But they also, well, he sees them but doesn't really <laughs> go to see and talk to them. Then he sees a man who's a zealot, the type of man who walks around proclaiming the end of the world. And he goes to that man and asks him if he's the Messiah. And he, uh, as is the one with those type of people, actually agrees and says that he is. And then becomes quite aggressive, tells him that his father is doomed and will die, and upsets the child. It's taken on a man called Buckner, who is played by Yafet Koto, who uh, I think some people might remember more from uh, being in Live and Let Die, um, the old James Bond film. But um, Buckner shoes off, shoes away the man who is um, his, well, shoes away the, the, the zealot, and then speaks to the child. And the child goes, like, you know, are you, a, you, you the Messiah? And he says he is. Well, he doesn't say he is, he says he's, he, he just kind of uh, let, goes along with the story and is amused by it somewhat. But he's obviously keen to help the lad who's, who's worried about his, uh, his grandfather and follows him back to the apartment. Outside, though, there's a massive commotion. There's lots of uh, the doctors there, and it's obvious now that um, Goodman's time is running out. He is extremely weak. He says, the angel of death has visited him twice now and he will visit him again at midnight which is in five minutes time the doctor is visibly upset with the situation he um, he gets used the boy into a different room um, mainly because Goodman tells him that he doesn't want his him to see him dying or dead he wants to be remembered as somebody's alive Goodman has given up hope at this stage. It's in this room that Buckner and uh, the doctor, Dr. Levine, is played by Tony Roberts, have a chat about the situation and about the idea of miracles and messiahs. So you're the messiah, huh? Does the messiah have a name? They call me Buckner. Buckner. All right, Mr. Buckner. If you have any special messianic powers, I wish you'd trot them out. I could use a miracle. Is he bad off? He says the angel of death is due at midnight. Who am I to argue? 
Do you believe in the angel of death? Levine, the doctor, dabbles only in the sciences, but Levine, the son of Jacob Levine, the well-known student of Levitical folklore, yes, he believes in the angel of death and the Messiah and miracles, too. It's apparent that the man's chances are running out and um, Dr. Levine is upset about this and also worries he's kind of, well, he's angry. He's angry at God. He's obviously a man of faith as well as a man of science and he doesn't see the justice in what's happening. He mocks the guy who's basically, uh, it appears to be probably an undertaker from the area and says uh, that he isn't much of a messiah really. While they're talking, a wind blows in the room. It appears that death really is coming to take his man. It is all extremely bleak. And as the wind leaves, the bedroom door opens. But we discover that Goodman is now well. He says he's had this strangest dream. He's delighted, he's energized, he's athletic again. He says he dreamt about the angel of death, about Shakespeare, about the Messiah. Everyone was there, including the doctor and the young boy. But also there was another man who was in the room and he's a bit confused. He's like, is there a guy in the, in the, in the living room? But both the God, the grandson and Dr. Levine are befuddled slightly and say, no, there was, there was never anybody there. They can't remember Buckner at all. It's as if he was never in the room and they'd never met. Uh, Goldman says, listen, I want to pay you for what you've done for me. You've literally created a miracle, Doctor. Um, I need to, I need to, you know, you've got bills. You're, you're, you're a man who, who you know, I, 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 I'm a man who, who must be paid and I want to pay you. And the Doctor kind of obviously says, waves it. He says, you haven't got any money. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Surely this kind of, <laughs> I'll use you as a case study about how good I am. Um, joking, you know, and um, not to stress. It's uh, everything is is now okay with the world, and I know that you know he talks about his his far as um, his brother again. He will give him this cash that he's owed, and he's saying, "Well, not to stress. We'll we'll sort it out when that happens." Thinking it'll be in the never never. But then there's a doctor. There's a knock at the door, and it's a postman with a package, a special delivery, and it looks suspiciously like Buckner as the postman. Our doctor is delighted, hands the special, the letter to the good, uh, to, the, to Goodman. And we find out that uh, it's actually his faith in his brother has paid off. And while no one believed that he had this land that he could sell, he did. And now he was willing to give him the money he was owed. It's been a great dead night for this doctor, and so he kind of leaves. He leaves the family to it, to their, to their, to their celebrations, the Hanukkah celebrations. Bumps into the postman who's picking up the mail, and they have one final exchange, 
one that it would appear that the doctor will remember. You just delivered some holiday gift upstairs. Did it please? It pleased, all right. <laughs> Dear God, how it pleased. Every now and then, God remembers the tenements. Yeah. All right, you are. Happy holidays to you. And to you and yours. And to the whole earth. To the whole earth. So, this story. Uh, Rod Serling has written a tale that is ludicrously sentimental. One about a man who gets a wish for Christmas Eve. Or Christmas Day by the time it happens, I suppose. He's granted it on the stroke of midnight. But that's perfect, really, for that, you know, for that time of year. Um, Salem was not a man who would touch often on his Jewish heritage. But in this case, he makes up for it in spades. It is a piece about clinging on to life but unlike many of night gallery stories these people that return from the grave or like cool air who cling on in an artificial way an uncanny way this is a story about a man who deserves a couple more years added on in a sense it's like one for the angels of you know the, the Twilight Zone story um, about a man. Uh, you know this, it's touched by, by you know, with, with with a religious theme of like you know, well, death coming in that case. But in this one, it's about um, you know a, a, a guy who who is able to cheat death by well by by asking for it, for the, through the power of prayer through the belief, his own belief and wish and begging and pleading and fighting for life because he needs it, he needs it for this nine-year-old boy and then obviously this, uh, only, like only a child could this young lad goes out and looks for his saviour the idea actually came from um, Cy Goldberg, uh, Goldberg who uh, was a screenwriter and he was the kind of guy who used to uh, be known for writing, uh, for telling stories about his time in Newark, New Jersey, growing up. And he told a story about his grandfather. And uh, Salem took that tale, fleshed it out, gave it some heart with the characters, and also gave it a lot more, well, a lot more spirit, but also obviously sprinkled with it a little bit more of uh, a Christmas feel, and also a feel for um, you know the the, the feel-good factor that he's given, it feels very much like a Serling story, though, with its strong characters and its wonderful dialogue of, of you know the our, our man Goodman is the type of gentleman who would who does um, he pleads for 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 a bit longer to live, and in that sense, it, it's done beautifully well. Um. It's obvious when it was submitted in June of 
combats at NBC, one of the, one of the guys at NBC, who uh, circulated the script around excitedly to his, uh, to his associates and uh, wrote a great memo, which I'll read for you now, which uh, shows exactly to the extent his belief and faith was in this script. I just finished reading an unusual drama by Rod Serling called The Messiah on Mott Street, which will be aired during the Christmas week on Rod Serling's Night Gallery this year. It is a beautiful, moving story, dealing with one element of the occult, the esoteric, the supernatural, namely the area of miracles and faith. It is an unusual Christmas story, offbeat, all the way, and yet unerringly true in the spirit of Judaism and Christianity. This 36-page drama, in my opinion, will become a holiday classic like Armel and the Night Visitors and the Dragnet Christmas Story. It is as touching and moving, if not more so, than Serling's A Storm and Summer. It is to this year's Night Gallery what Serling's The Tearing Down Tim Riley's Bar was to last year's. It is more, actually, than Storm and Summer or Tim Riley's Bar because its final note is one of total affirmation. I believe this show deserves individual attention and would appreciate your pitching this to TV Guide or other major magazine outlet. If that doesn't work, you might use the show as a main focal point and suggest the magazine does a layout or story about what TV is doing, especially around Christmas, in light of the growing popularity of mysticism and religion as a reaction to drugs, such as the Jesus Freaks and other movements. Show films July 12th through 15th. Cast info coming, script attached. Thank you. It's unsurprising then that they decided to go for Don Taylor to direct it. He was the director of Tim Riley's Bar. He gave that show a very different feel to a lot of the episodes that were around it. And indeed, in this case, he was able to give it a certain amount of punch too. They aimed high for, for, uh, for their cast and went for, in the role of Abraham Goodman, Edward G. Robinson, a man with years and years of experience in Hollywood, with hundreds of films under his belt. Um, it was a good choice, although, hilariously, he was a very proud man, and there was initially a lot of trouble between Taylor and Robinson. He, for example, refused to wear his hearing aid, even though it would actually fit the character. And he also refused to speak in the Jewish idioms which Serling had injected into the script. It was not in his nature to, to act like that anymore. He was far more used to playing gangsters in truth. And as such, such, such little touches were not needed. And he either struggled or would deliberately try to keep them out of his performance. His appearance on set was... Uh, was great and, and, and in truth created a, a great atmosphere despite the problems that Taylor had fighting the, the performance out of him. Tony Roberts, for example, said this. On the first day that we worked together, Mr. Robinson asked me to come into his trailer and run through some lines with him. Of course, I was just thrilled just to be anywhere near him. And as we started to go through the script, he revealed to me that he was very nervous, that he was always very nervous on the first day of shooting because he was fearful that he might be fired. Can you believe that? He's a guy who's made 160 pictures. He's the best actor who, who was ever in front of a camera. And he's afraid he's going to get fired on the first day. 
Um, I mean, obviously, Taylor was never going to fire Robertson, although he did struggle with him. He tried to get him to crank up some of the Jewish phrases in his performance to coach it out of him, and uh, Robertson was against that at first. So we had to spend a lot of time on him. Taylor's other struggle was with um, the young lad who played Mikey, who was, um, well, he, rather harshly, the director says, that, um, it, it, that Ricky Powell's performance was, you know, he had to really work for him to get the performance that he wanted out of him. And in actual fact, he went for the lad's look because he obviously looked a lot like he could be his grandson rather than his acting acting chops, as it were. And he felt that he had to focus a lot more on the on the scenes with the child than he did, and possibly neglect a little bit, trying to coerce the performance that he wanted out of Robinson. The truth of that is, ultimately, he think Taylor's been a bit harsh, really, on the actors and also on himself. Um, it's a very powerful, very strong performance um, from everybody. But obviously at its heart is Robertson, certainly, because it has to be. Because you have to buy into the fact that he is the person who is fighting for his life. You know, there's a line in it where he says that, yeah, the, the doctor says that, you know, that he... You know, he is that. You know, he's very, very ill. But the, the best way to get any kind of reaction out of him is to try and take something away from him. And in this case, his grandson. And he'll, you know, he'll fight, fight and fight and fight for that. And that's really, you know, that that is carried out in the performance from from Robertson. And it is it is a, a, a beautifully put together in that sense. Um. Then you've got Doctor Levine. Uh, played by Tony Roberts, who again plays the Doctor in, in a way that is, you know, you, you carry him. He he has a lot of heart. He is a, a Doctor who, obviously, you know, is doing the right thing. And uh, Goodman, the character Goodman, is obviously very lucky to have him to try and help. You know, he he does these things and he does what he can to try and make that's like you know the the old man's life as good as possible i mean you know he, he just casually drops in the fact that he's going to pop in on christmas day to check that he's okay he's very aware that you know goodman's entering into his end game and is and that angers him and also he's more than willing to fight and to try and do what's right and then obviously his final joy at the miracle is uh is wonderfully wonderfully shown it is beautifully, you know, he, he, he generally carry, conveys that joy that something incredible has happened. And yeah, Mikey, played by Ricky Powell, does suffer somewhat from, you know, child actoritis, mugging a little bit. But his, his character is like this wide-eyed innocence, and you can't really blame him too much for that. And then obviously, Yafet Koto's um, Buckner is a very stoic very dignified performance he keeps it very contained he's not a man who waves magic wands and he does it in a way that is is, is touching and uh, yeah, it, it, it works really well you're not quite sure if he really is our messiah until he does 
his miracle and seems so pleased at what he's done. Taylor himself um, gives it a great, um, some great work. But basically, what he does is he he's able to. Well, it, it, he only did Tim Riley's bar on this for Night Gallery, and I think that's interesting because they're both, you know, very different pieces from each from from the other shows, mainly because they're so uh, focused on character. I mean. Tim Riley Bart could entirely be set in reality and truth. You just open a door and you're in the past. But and, and with this, um, there's a little bit more. Obviously, there's more mysticism. There's the miracle at work. This Christmas miracle. But at the same time, um, he keeps it grounded. I mean, you know, you, you see the angel of death visit a dying man, but it's done as a shadow. And while and, and and the focus is always on the performance of Robertson as he as he pleads for more time and tells Death to go away and he's always willing to fight. So uh, you know, the the arrival of the miracle itself is merely a breeze, and that keeps everything far more believable and far more grounded. Um, I think it's quite a modern thing. Uh, certainly, a lot more British. Uh, Christmas stories over the last five to ten years on on TV, or you know, you normally get at least one that is a story of a Christmas miracle visited in an ordinary way to ordinary people, and um, it, this is the case here as well. Um, wonderful things happening to people who are willing to fight for them. So it's great. I mean, yes. Uh, I think it's easy to say this story is sentimental. And you will be right. Because it is sentimental. Uh, Taylor, I think, preferred Riley's Bar. I think that's understandable because it, he, he didn't like the mysticism as much. But I think that's, uh, that's okay. Uh, because that attempt to keep everything grounded adds to the story. Adds to its believability. And in the end, that scene that we have with the uh, the Doctor and our Messiah Buckner going in separate directions is truly, you know, uh, one that it really really works and it has a lot of emotional weight and is ultimately, as with a lot of Christmas stories, very good ones, uh, lifts the heart. I mean, after all, um, who wouldn't want a story about a man who, you know, gets his Christmas wish, mainly because he's so willing to fight for it? I have a message for you, you snuffer out of candles, you wholesaler in the cops business. I know who you are, and to your unseen face, I tell you, I'm not ready for the angel of death. You are not ready for Take that back to the cemetery. Goldman is not ready. No, my pulse still beats. My eyes still see, the flesh still warm. And my heart, you mums are from Rosaline, my heart still loves. Okay, just a bit of housekeeping. First things first, uh, Tom has done 
a new Twilight Zone episode. Uh, it's been a while. He's been really struggling to uh, to get them out, mainly because of uh, other commitments. But uh, he's done uh, episode 21, which is The Monsters of Dew on Maple Street. Uh, that's out now. And if you haven't subscribed and you haven't listened to it yet, you should, because it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, really, really great episode. And obviously one of the classics of the Twilight Zone. And uh, he gives his own opinions on it, but uh, he also gives plenty of information about what is a wonderful story. Um, so get on it, download it now, after this. Um, usual housekeeping, you want to get hold of me, you can do. My prize, my personal Twitter account is at orange underscore monkey. But if you want to leave some feedback or comments or you want to chat about anything I've just said, um, you can do on our website, www.thetwilightzonenetwork.com where our Facebook is is there. That's quite quite active these days. And uh, there's a link to our Twitter, which is Twilight Zone Net. Uh, that more really, you know, that we do we do leave comments and stuff on that and we do say stuff, but a lot of the time that's uh, more linking to what we've done on the website. Um, you can email me as well, obviously, at chris at thetwilightzonenetwork.com. So, after this quite heartfelt podcast and a heartfelt story, um, we go to something a little bit lighter next week. A bit, bit of silliness. It is uh, written and directed by Gene Kearney. Um, it's a bit of a love it or hate it kind of thing. It's all a bit of silly, really. It's The Painted Mirror, um, which features Jar Jar Gabor. So, uh, until then, take care, and I'll speak to you soon. Goodbye. Thank you.